Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Happy New Year and welcome to this 2019 kickoff episode of the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. I'm your host, Modern Bar Cart CEO, Eric Koslick. I gotta tell you, we've got some great stuff coming in the next few months here, and this week's interview is right at the head of the pack. Our guest is Philadelphia-based bartender Paul McDonald, who is currently behind the stick at a wonderful establishment called Friday, Saturday, Sunday, right on historic Rittenhouse Square. I met Paul a few years back, and we'll hear that story in just a few moments here. But before we do, I think this would be a marvelous time for you to make yourself a drink. This week's featured cocktail ingredient is Laird's Applejack, which is an American apple brandy produced in New Jersey. We talk a little bit about this really interesting spirit during the lightning round, but I wanted to feature it here for a couple reasons. First, it's dark, mellow flavor profile fits really well with this time of year when we're all kind of hunkered down waiting on spring to show up. And second, it's a really interesting historical spirit. Back when cocktails first became popular, there were a lot more fruit brandies being produced here in the United States. And so I think Laird's Applejack is a great way to get back to our agricultural roots as a cocktail nation. Now, if you're first starting out with a bottle of Applejack, which really shouldn't run you any more than 25 or $30, no matter where you are in the US, what I'd recommend doing is swapping it out for whiskey or brandy in your favorite classic cocktails. That means Old Fashions, Manhattan, Sidecars, Sazeracs, Vucares, Juleps, and Brambles are all on the table, along with all the others I forgot to mention. But perhaps the most famous Applejack cocktail is called the Jack Rose. To make this drink, you'll need, very simply, two ounces of Applejack, three quarters of an ounce of grenadine, which is a pomegranate syrup, and then three quarters of an ounce of lemon juice. Combine all those ingredients in a mixing glass with ice, shake it well, and strain into a stemmed cocktail glass with an optional apple slice or brandied cherry garnish. Personally, I think a nice dehydrated apple wheel would look really nice there, but that's just me. One last thing to note is if you don't know where to pick up grenadine, it's actually pretty easy to make at home. You can actually just whip up a one-to-one -one simple syrup using whatever sugar you prefer. And in place of the water, you can use just pomegranate juice. And that is gonna yield you something that is almost indistinguishable from all the commercial grenadines out there. So if you're running into problems, the DIY approach for that Jack Rose ingredient might just do the trick. Getting back to our interview with bartender, Instagram icon, and hospitality guru, Paul McDonald, some of the things we discuss include how Paul approaches a hospitality situation with different types of customers. He walks us through some of the questions and decision paths that he follows to create an excellent cocktail experience that's personalized to each customer who walks in the door. 
Which house-made ingredients are his go-to flavors for wowing guests and creating drinks that disrupt the traditional linear flavor experience we've come to expect? We'll explain what we mean by a linear flavor experience during the interview. The way Paul develops new cocktails and how he turned to the Fibonacci sequence of all things as a new and unexpected paradigm for creating his drinks. A few tips for taking your cocktail Instagram game to the next level. Deep thoughts on everything from martinis to bar interior decorating and much, much more. You can find Paul on his incredible Instagram account at express underscore and underscore discard. And currently, you can find him behind the bar at Friday, Saturday, Sunday in Philadelphia. We'll have an interactive map right on the show notes page, so be sure to stop by next time you're in the Philly area. And now, without further ado, please enjoy this stimulating conversation with one of my personal favorite mixologists, Paul McDonald. Paul, thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. So I'm extremely excited for this interview because I've been waiting a long time to talk to you. Uh, I've had this one experience with you as a a patron of of an establishment where you were behind the bar and it's been kind of rattling around in my head ever since. And um, so I'm excited to get into all of what you have to share about cocktails. But first, can you just introduce yourself to our listeners and tell people who you are and how you got to be doing what you're doing now? Yeah, absolutely. I'm really glad that the experience you had at my bar stuck with you so much. I actually no longer work at that particular establishment. Um, I've moved just across Rittenhouse Square to a new restaurant called Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Um, We've been open for uh, just a little over two years now uh, at the new place. We just celebrated our second anniversary actually on December 8th. Congrats. Um, Thank you. Uh, But I've uh, I've been bartending for eight, almost nine years now. Starting in 2010, I'm from Bethlehem, Pennsylvania originally, um, and I moved to Philadelphia in late 2011 and uh, worked at a couple of places that are no longer open, but I would say the biggest highlights of my career so far started at A-Bar where I met you, Mm -hmm. um, which would have been in 2015, um, and I was there for two years, and I've been at Friday, Saturday, Sunday now for two years as well. Right. I uh, would say... Working in that neighborhood, working in Rittenhouse Square has really gone a long way toward helping me to develop my own style um, and develop my kind of philosophy on hospitality and on cocktails and kind of having to have an opportunity to, to establish myself in the city scene. Right. So did you start out as a bartender? Did you work your way up as a barback? What happened there? I did start out as a bartender, actually. I had the I, I was working in a small town at the time, and I had the good fortune to be hired for a job that I really wasn't qualified for, but that gave me lots of opportunities to learn and to uh, learn through experience and kind of learn from my failures and from my successes and all that. Uh, so I've been very fortunate in that way. I've actually, I, I was able to start as a bartender in 2010. Right. So in Rittenhouse Square, for folks who aren't kind of familiar with the area, it's a kind of center city, Philadelphia. It's very beautiful. Yeah, it's it's the primary kind of tourism and shopping district. It's the highest priced real estate in the city. It's it's a great place to work in restaurants. We have, sure. we have a really great uh, 
really great restaurant scene, tons and tons of foot traffic, and the people who live in the neighborhood there are just wonderful people. Yeah. So the first time, let me let me kind of describe for our listeners the experience that I had when I walked into Mm -hmm. a bar, which is again, different from the place where you're working now. Um, and we can use that to maybe jump into some of your thoughts on what it takes to build a great cocktail experience. How's that sound? Mm -hmm. So it was just, I, I don't even remember really what month it was, but, uh, it was, I think it was like a nice fall or it was like an early fall or a late spring day. I was walking around with my good friend, Luke, uh, who's, an occupational therapist here in in Philly. He had just moved here and and gotten a new job and he was kind of showing me around because I had never really been to the area. And I asked him if there were any good um, cocktail spots or places where we could just pop in and grab a drink and and get a sense of the scene. So we were in the Rittenhouse Square area. We kind of took a tour around the square and he said, oh, I've heard good things about this bar, a bar, but I've never been in. We popped in and it was this beautiful little bar kind of extending off the side of a hotel, Mm -hmm. right? Yep. And I remember the light was really nice and it was uh, a first story bar Mm -hmm. and it had a really nice view of all the foot traffic and the park. And so- Great people watching. Yeah, really, really good people watching, which I enjoy from a bar. Yeah. Um, Some people like that really intimate kind of like just- darker you and the bartender situation but um, for for day drinking like that Mm -hmm. really really beautiful and so we sat down and we just immediately recognized that the menu was a a pretty special cocktail menu it was uh it sounds weird to say this but it was ingredient focused Mm -hmm. was the first thing that i realized the ingredients that were being called out were obviously very carefully curated it wasn't just like um nothing against the old fashioned, but it wasn't just whiskey, sugar, bitters. Mm-hmm. It was very specific syrups. And you could tell that there was some, some house made stuff going on as mm-hmm. well. Yeah. So I paid attention immediately. And then you entered the picture and we started having this really great conversation. And because the, the bar wasn't super crowded, um, you were able to pay uh, kind of a special brand of attention to us. And, uh, that was a very formative experience for me in cocktails because, I don't think to that point that I'd had that uh, direct of a focus from a bartender who was also kind of an auteur of the menu in that really hyper curated way. So I guess having that experience being described, can you talk to our listeners about how you approach creating great cocktail experiences for people and maybe in a general sense, and then we can dive into some of the individual like strategies that you use? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I feel very strongly that the most important aspect of a cocktail bar is its flexibility and uh, the ability to craft an experience to an individual guest. Um, So in a restaurant with a kitchen, there's so much prep that goes into each individual dish. There's so much planning and there are so many perishable ingredients. You're very limited. You put out a menu, you can possibly make slight modifications to the dishes on the menu, but when it comes down to it, you're going to be ordering something that's from the menu. A cocktail bar can have a lot more freedom than that. Um, We have so many non-perishable ingredients that we work with. We have so much flexibility um, and I have always felt that it's very important to build a cocktail menu that draws a guest in and uh, kind of encourages them to delve deeper into the experience, build a relationship with the bartender. And ultimately, I like to build a cocktail menu that encourages people to order off menu. Um, So the cocktails on the menu are a token of what we do. 
it's a way to invite you and to show you our style. And if you like our style and if you like what you're tasting, there is so much more that we have available. Um, so I like to I like to do cocktail service very conversationally. I like to try to build that relationship with each individual guest when possible um, and try to customize your experience and give you exactly the drink that you're looking for right now. So um, I have a lot of regular guests that uh, that have been coming to my bar for years and they never actually order anything specific. Uh, they just come to my bar and ask me to make them whatever new thing I'm working on or or to give them whatever they need for the food that they're eating or for where they are in their day. You know, one thing that I like to do a lot is ask people, you know, have you eaten yet? Are you planning to eat? Um, you, you know, what's what, what point of your day are you in? Is this your last drink of the night? Have you already been drinking for a few hours? Is this your first drink of the day? Kind of get an idea of where they are in their day and what drink would be appropriate for right now. However long they're planning to stay at my bar, um, however long they're planning to, you know, continue their current experience, whether it's at my bar or somewhere else, I, I like to I like to look for context in order to create the perfect experience for them at that moment. To me, that sounds a lot like um almost like improv inputs yeah. uh, during improv set. You ask the audience for an input and then you use sort of the rules of whatever game you're playing or long form set you're doing to incorporate those inputs from the audience. And so it seems like some of the, the rules of the game might be, you know, like the uh, aperitivo, digestivo, mm -hmm. nightcap type situation. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Um, like that's one kind of set of constraints. You can put that there, uh, there, feedback through and then it seems like you have others so um those are those are a really interesting set of questions are there any other sets of or types of questions or uh, ways that you get into the headspace of the patron and figure out what what best to make them um well for one thing it's not it, it's important to note that it's not just about the drinks that I'm making them. It's about viewing cocktail service as a as an aspect of hospitality. And this is the reason why, personally, I love working in restaurants. I, I love working in a cocktail bar that is part of a restaurant where I can serve food and we can have uh, an interesting wine program and we can have all kinds of other things. Um, the kind of fussy cocktail uh, cocktail dens that are so super focused on cocktails, um, and serve little to no food. You can certainly have great experiences there and they can, they, they have the ability to put together some amazing drinks, um, because they are able to focus all of their attention on just making cocktails. But what I personally am more interested in is, building that larger hospitality experience of which food and so many other things are a part. So, you know, I will, uh, the, the question of whether someone is dining with us is one of the first big, one of the first big things to get out of the way. And then the question becomes, you know, what are you eating? Are, are we going to, are we going to do cocktail pairings? Are we going to do wine pairings? Are you looking for just something that you can sip on while you snack? Um, so that's a huge part of it. Um, the question of food, um, but you know, it, a lot of it is nonverbal and a lot of it is also just trying to get, uh, get an idea for where they are. 
just by talking to them if they're if they're out with friends if they're by themselves what kind of a mood they seem to be and you know it's there's a lot of nonverbal communication i would say that goes into it for sure for sure and hospitality is such a huge trend right now not only in cocktail programs but in any sort of bar or restaurant setting i I think the way that i see it is that since the cocktail renaissance started, we've been able to master the $8 old fashioned. We've been mm-hmm. able to master the $8 martini. We've been able to master the classics and, and the availability of good quality products at reasonable prices has allowed us to, to do some of that. And so once I, I saw these bartenders, mixologists and these bar programs rounding out their exploration of all the classic cocktails, it almost became like this searching for what's next. And it Mm -hmm. seems like a lot of people came to the conclusion that hospitality is really a place that, that you can assert yourself in the space and really demonstrate that, that your program has something to offer. So I guess before we move on to how you go about developing the cocktails themselves that that your that your Instagram so so beautifully showcases. What are your thoughts on hospitality, and and do you have any specific approaches or ways of thinking about that that might be useful for our listeners? Um, that's that's complicated. Hospitality is it's all about anticipating needs, as you hear and read so often in classic hospitality books, um, and it's, you know, there are steps of service and there are these formal aspects of hospitality that are vitally important to master, um, but are really just the first step. Um, and, you know, what's really more important, what what you're ultimately building toward once you've mastered the, the technique of hospitality, um, what you're really moving toward is the ability to build relationships with people and preferably to build relationships with people very quickly. You know, uh, so many times you have a single opportunity to make that impression on a guest. So they come into your bar to check you out and you need them to leave impressed uh, or else they might never be back and you might not have not have another opportunity. So, um, you know, it's very important, I think, to try to engage conversationally as much as possible and to try to to try to make people feel comfortable and make them feel like they want to come back and like I said, the cocktails are one of many ways to do that. And, right. and you know, um, I don't want to downplay the importance of the cocktails either because people, uh, obviously people enjoy drinking, but more importantly, or equally importantly, at least, you know, I think that when you are able to, when you're able to curate that experience and when you're able to really nail a guest's preferences, that's what keeps people coming back. And that's what keeps the experience rattling around in their mind and reminds them that they want to come back there and check it out again. Absolutely. And there's two, there's these two competing sets of power dynamics as soon as somebody walks into the bar and sits down, right? There's the power dynamic where you are the knowledge base, you are the expert, you're the the artist who created this. And in that respect, you have power over, over them to, to influence the shape of their experience. On the other hand, they're paying you, which means mm-hmm. at least for now, they're your boss. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like in order to form a good relationship between a patron and a bartender, you have to find a way to kind of equalize both of those two power dynamics so that everybody's happy, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, what the challenge in many cases is um, to, uh, to kind of uh, exude enough confidence that they feel confident 
in your knowledge of, you know, what it will take to give them a good experience in this restaurant. You know, when right. it comes down to it, I know the food menu. I know the drink menu. I know what we do here. And what I need to try to do is convince you that I know the best way for you to experience sure. our thing. Even if you already know what you like, it's possible that it's possible that you that we can offer you something different that you didn't realize before that you liked. Right. It's still your journey, but now you have a guide. And of course, you know, you have to you have to gain their trust. You have to you have to build it organically, um, but that's ultimately ultimately what I'm going for. You know, and I, I mean, there are different types of guests. Also, you know, we have a lot of regulars also that know exactly what they like. People that come into the bar and they order the same thing every single time, and I have no problem whatsoever with that. If you already know what you like, and and we are able to offer it to you, then I'm honored that you've chosen our bar as the place where you like to enjoy it, and I have no problem with that whatsoever. Totally. But I do like to offer, I do like to offer that customized experience to people that are looking for it. Totally, totally. Well, those are great thoughts on hospitality. Um, let's move on to the cocktails now, mm -hmm. um, because, I, and I don't even remember if I came to your Instagram before I walked into your bar and then realized it was the bartender mm -hmm. in front of me whose Instagram <laughs> I had been following, or if it was the other way around. But uh, you have a beautiful Instagram account. Thank you. And it, just the cocktails that show up on a weekly basis on my feed uh, are simultaneously impressive, inspiring, and kind of provoke me to try and up my own game in my home bar. So um, I, I think it would be really interesting to hear you talk about whether you're doing it kind of for the Instagram uh, kind of on your own at home or whether you're doing it for a specific inclusion on a menu, how do you approach designing a cocktail that is not just an old fashioned or a Manhattan or a martini? Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, tying it into uh, my, my comments before about my styles, my style of service and, you know, customizing the experience and selling off menu co cocktails. Ultimately the, the other kind of the the other thing that's really nice about that the secondary advantage to that is that I always have new cocktails in development you know it's it's an easy way to to constantly be selling new experiments and be be able to get you know real time reactions from real people to a new a new recipe that I'm playing around with you know I always have new drinks that I'm playing around with and Ultimately, some of them make the cut and end up on the menu. Ultimately, some of, you know, a lot of them don't. Um, there are, you know, I, I always have a whole bunch of cocktails that I'm making for people on a regular basis that don't even have a name yet. Um, and the regulars that I talked about that, that you know, always order whatever I'm working on are used to that. They just, they, they know, they, they know better than to ask if this one has a name because they know it's not going to have a name yet. Um, so that's, you know, that's one aspect that's nice. The, it, it really helps with kind of the R and D phase of it. Um, and it allows me to just kind of have, uh, have a bunch of new cocktails always on the back burner that when I need to change something out of the menu, I can just pull something out and plug it into that space a lot of the time, not always, mm -hmm. but it, de that definitely is a secondary advantage. Like I said, um, but when it comes to the actual development of flavors, um, the development of house-made ingredients and things like that, 
I've gone through a lot of different phases. Um, you know, I think that I think this is probably pretty typical, but you know, in my over the course of my career, I've gone through a big phase with shrubs. I've gone through a big phase with Amaro. I've gone through you know phases with all the different spirits and all that. Um, but recently, I've been um, in in the past few years, I've really been looking at um, some some of my favorite cocktails that I've made in the past few years have been cocktails in which I'm trying to kind of fundamentally restructure the way that flavors flow through a drink um in my mind um a lot of a lot of the great classic cocktails have kind of a very linear palette to them they they go from point a to point b um if you think of a manhattan or a martini the flavors flow in one direction um and i've been experimenting a lot with pure spirit cocktails especially um that take kind of a more winding path through your palate. Um, and that, that's what I've been, that, that's what I've been going for. Um, and that's the way that I've been trying to develop flavors. So I'm trying to, uh, I'm trying to take a lot of disparate flavors, a lot of flavors that kind of hit your palate at different points, um, and in different, in a different order and combine them in such a way that you taste every single one, but you taste them, you, you taste them in sequence. Um, instead of it being one single one single flavor i like i like a drink that takes a whole bunch of unexpected turns from the moment that you start that you first sip it until a couple seconds after you've swallowed it um now that is that's especially true of a lot of the pure spirit cocktails that i've been doing like i said of course i'm also i'm i'm putting together a cocktail menu so it's necessary to have a variety of different types of flavors. You can't have every single one of them be this heady, intellectual, boozy drink. Um, but I have been experimenting with every, every every different class of ingredient that I can find that kind of sticks out in different places in the palate. So I mean, I've been <clears throat> I've been doing a lot with uh, I've been doing a lot recently with uh, low alcohol pure spirit cocktails that are based on fortified wines okay. and amari and things like that for example because the flavors are so intricate and you can you can you can work with them to make the flavors layer in so many different ways and get such interesting flavor contours i have a few specific house-made ingredients that i just keep coming back to um a couple of them that you know i i make again and again year after year uh as the seasons go um yeah, let's yeah, talk I'm, about those. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I would say probably my my most used one right now is uh, lemon and coriander shrub. Um, it's essentially lemon peels. It's a lemon oleosaccharum that I dissolve into a coriander seed tea, um, strain out the solids, and then fortify it with rice vinegar. Um, now, I've... I've found so many different applications for this i've been making this drink or i'm sorry i've been making this ingredient for five or six years now um and i usually bring it back every spring and summer um and do at least one new drink on the menu with it um but i've found i've found so many different applications using it in citrus drinks as well as pure spirit drinks combining it with clear spirits and dark spirits it's actually featured in uh in two separate drinks on our menu right now at work um, which I, I very rarely double up ingredients on a list, but it's, it's two very different applications. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's just a, it's a very versatile ingredient. It adds a nice, it, it, it adds a very distinct type of acidity to a drink. Um, and I Dark. like it particularly with pure spirit cocktails because it allows you to add 
acid without adding citrus juice. Right. And the rice wine too is something that's just a little bit uncanny for the American palate mm-hmm. because most of us have tasted it at some point. Right. Mm-hmm. But with a shrub, we're expecting either apple cider or right. regular distilled white vinegar. Yeah. And so you're you're messing a little bit with expectations while mm-hmm. also checking the right boxes. But then with the I find with rice-based spirits like a, a Mekong mm-hmm. whiskey, for example, and with rice wine vinegar, there's this really interesting, I want to say a sweetness to it yeah. uh, that, that lingers uh, without affecting the acidity level necessarily. Right. Well, that's just the thing. The The acidity is distinctive and you can't, you can't miss it. It's definitely there, but it's a very gentle acidity. Mm-hmm. Um, and it gives you, it, it's like I said, it's versatile. It, it works with all types of different ingredients exactly because of that it's it's gentle and it's it's perceived as sweet even if it's not sweet sure um, your palate perceives it that way what other um house-made ingredients do you keep on coming back to or do you do you find yourself returning to even if you don't you know feature them on mm-hmm. on a menu at, at all times um well a, a lot of seasonal ones so for example during the fall i like to do a fig syrup which i actually had to skip this year because it's been a terrible season for figs but i have uh I, I am very proud of my fig syrup. Um, that's, you know, that's obvious. That's easy. And I, I always keep, you know, a habanero tincture on hand so that I can make any drink spicy, okay. for example. Um, but I have, uh, well, there's a, there's a savory bitters, I call it. It's not really a bitters. I just don't really have a better word for it. I don't, I don't like putting the word tincture on my menu. Um, which I use pretty extensively and it's been featured in one particular drink on our menu ever since we opened actually, but I use it in all kinds of applications. Um, it's essentially, a, it's an infusion that's structured like a bitters, but completely with ingredients that are, that kind of come out of the kitchen. So the primary bittering agent is mustard seed. Uh-huh. Um, then it uses caraway, fennel, star anise, black peppercorn, and dehydrated lemon peel. Mm-hmm. Um, so I like using that a lot, especially in, uh, especially in citrusy drinks. Um, it's a really nice, uh, it, it adds a really nice gentle savory undertone to anything. And it is, it's a very approachable bitters. Um, it, it's a very, it's, it's a very approachable savory flavor that you can put in, you know, entry level bright citrusy cocktails. Sure. Um, but I've also, uh, I've had a lot of success using it in darker drinks as well. Like one drink that's very popular that, it's never been on the menu, but I make it for people all the time. Um, I basically make an old fashioned that's based on Bull's Geneva with savory bitters and uh, Pedro Jimenez sherry as the sweetener. Um, and there, there, once again, you get that effect where you, you get these flavors swirling around. You kind of taste each of the different spices from the savory bitters coming out at a different point and folding into those other flavors in different ways and at different times. Um, yeah, I call those drinks, uh, drinks that won't sit still. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think the first time I had caraway in a cocktail was when I came to a bar. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you were only using it in a syrup at that point or something, but it was, it was definitely something that you can, you, you kind of said, Hey, give this a shot. It may very well have been the first batch that I ever made of this savory bitters. It's yeah. very possible. Cause there that was go. at a bar. Cool. Um, but yeah, I, uh, the one particular project that has been has been very influential that I've I've been having a lot of fun with for the past couple of years and has has inspired a lot of my cocktails recently 
um, I've been uh, I've been making cocktails that pure spirit cocktails with their ingredient ratios based on uh, the Fibonacci sequence. So this this project started out by accident, actually. Um, the original version of it. I, I originally had an idea in mind to make a drink completely out of fortified wines. Um, so as I recall, uh, it was the, the ones I was working with were rare wine company, Boston, Boal Madeira, mm-hmm. um, Cardamaro, Puntimes, yep. Tempest Fugit, Kinkina, Lero Dor, and Koki Vermouth de Torino. Boom. Um, that's a very interesting and widespread group of yeah, ingredients. Yeah, you know, I figured it's it's ingredients that cover a huge range of different flavors. Um, and my thought was there must be a way that I can combine all these things in such a way that, like I said before, you taste everything in succession. Everything, it kind of sprawls out across your palate and gives you that that lingering flavor experience with that interesting flavor contour. And I experimented with a lot of different ratios. I I put different orders, different, uh, every ratio you can imagine. And the one that ended up working just happened to be, uh, a quarter, quarter, half, three quarter, one and a quarter, uh, which lines up perfectly with the Fibonacci sequence. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, I, I am, uh, aware that when you, uh, you know, when you factor in the different textures and the different sweetness levels and everything of all these drinks, it's not the Fibonacci sequence isn't exactly this magical thing, but it's been a really interesting um it it's been a really interesting experiment. It's it's become a really cool way to kind of force myself to think about drinks in a different way. Um where I'll I set out with the goal in mind to make a drink based on this ratio. Um and if a certain if a certain flavor isn't working, I don't adjust the ratio. I adjust, I adjust the ingredient. And so I, you know, it rather than, rather than tweaking the ratio, I'm always tweaking the ingredients and I'm always looking for new ingredients that perfectly fit into this slot. Or in some cases I'm, you know, putting an ingredient that I'm already familiar with in this slot and it's functioning in a way that I didn't realize that it could. And I'm tasting new things that I never tasted in this thing that I was already familiar with. So that's that's been a that, that's been a fun kind of side project also. Yeah, I'm really glad that you brought up the Fibonacci sequence cocktails because that's a project that you told me about when mm-hmm. I came to A Bar and it's funny, usually when I hear a brilliant idea like this, I immediately go home and see if I can execute on it somehow. <laughs> I have never gotten to the point where I've tried this at home, even though, you know, I think my home bar is certainly to the point where I have enough ingredients Mm -hmm. where I can start, you know, messing around. God knows I have enough bitters. So, (laughs) um, I want to, I want to dig into this for a couple reasons. Mm -hmm. One is I think that this Fibonacci sequence and the way that you've been using kind of a visual or spatial, understanding of flavor Mm -hmm. so far in this conversation, I think they're related to one another. Absolutely. Um, Because I was going to ask you to define this, but, but I'll, I'll just let you correct me if I'm wrong here. You you talk about, um, you know, how a lot of cocktails have a very linear progression. um, And that kind of is a, a nod to the palate, right? It starts on the front of the tongue, moves back to the tongue. And then 
as we as you swallow and then breathe, you get more of that retronasal mm-hmm. uh, experience as it as it goes up, um, and and you get more of the aromas on the back end, um, and it seems like it's more interesting now that we've mastered kind of some of these kind of standard cocktails to see if we can break that and play around with it a little bit and, yeah. and break expectations, right? Cause exactly, that's where yeah. delight comes from in comedy and poetry, whatever. Mm-hmm. Right. So the Fibonacci sequence certainly is something that breaks conventional expectations. Uh, and the other reason I wanted to talk about, the Fibonacci sequence right now is that it seems kind of timely because I believe there's a book and I, I could be wrong. So I apologize to the authors of this book if, if this is not what they're going for, but I believe it's called the cocktail codex. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think their thesis might be from what I've heard that there's only like a, a small handful of cocktails that all of the cocktails have kind of grown out of. Yeah. And I don't, how does the Fibonacci sequence map onto that? I don't think it maps onto any of those well, handful that they I, might be talking about. I unfortunately haven't actually gotten around to buying the cocktail codex yet. I've flipped through it in the bookstore and I it looks so interesting and I'm planning on picking up a copy and reading it soon. Um, but I uh, I would absolutely agree without having read the book yet that there's a small number of cocktails that everything has come from. You know, I I don't know what their small number is, but in my mind, I think of the basic cocktails as being um, the, well, the original cocktail, that is the old fashioned, um, structured with liquor, bitters, and sugar. Uh, the Martinez, structured with liquor, some type of a weakening agent, a fortified wine or an Amaro or something, and possibly bitters, possibly not. Um, that would include, you know, Martinez, Manhattan, Martini, uh, Negroni, and a million more modern ones. Um, so you put the Negroni into the Martinez category. Yeah, I think of the I, I think of a Negroni basically as being a split base of gin and Campari, with the Campari also functioning as a, as a bitters. Um, but then you know a basic sour, which in, includes the majority of all classic cocktails actually um, that are structured on liquor, bitter, uh, sorry, liquor, citrus sweetener, and possibly a bittering or modifying agent or possibly not. Um, And those are, those are the three basic flavor structures. And then, you know, you could argue that a Collins or a buck is different potentially, but the point is I would definitely agree that, you know, the overwhelming majority of old cocktails are based on these, couple of really basic recipes um you could you could debate the details of what exactly the basics are but it is a small number and that was kind of the reason that i started uh started exploring this new type of flavor contour because i'm looking for ways to structure flavors differently so on paper the pretty much all of my fibonacci cocktails um on paper they would read like my definition of a Martinez family cocktail. Um, if you're, you know, splitting up different bases and modifiers into different pieces and all that, but they would read basically like that, but uh, they don't drink like that. The The flavor is very, the, the way that the flavor unfolds in your palate is very different. The contour of it is very different. And that's, that's the idea um, to kind of create a new type of structure for a drink and a new type of structure for flavors. Mm. 
That's so, so, so fascinating. Um, have you, so the, the drink that you described as being the genesis of the Fibonacci sequence was a five ingredient drink. Mm -hmm. So if we're following the Fibonacci sequence, that's one, one, two, three, five mm -hmm. in terms of the ratio. Do you ever lop off that five and then do a one, one, two, three with different measurements? Occasionally. And I've also on a couple of occasions done seven ingredient ones that are you know eighth eighth quarter three eighths five eighths one <laughs> one and five eighths which I, I know it's ridiculous but you know just taking the experiment to its conclusion why not yeah um, it's it, it's fun you know um and and you really yeah it's it, it's it, it's interesting to see the way that different ingredients can interact um and that ratio it's it's a very good workable ratio so yeah, yeah I've, I've played around a little bit. The overwhelming majority of them have followed are five ingredient ones. Yeah. Um, gotcha. Yeah. Well, that's I, I I love hearing about somebody who kind of goes on a little project and then doesn't abandon it after a couple of of tries. Right. You're yeah. you're still you're still getting value about this, which is mm -hmm. why I'm so glad we're here to talk about it. Uh, so to listeners out there. You've got a new template for thinking about cocktails. So if you've been building your home bar, what I'd encourage you to do is, is see if you can use the Fibonacci sequence to do a new riff on something that's uh, kind of tried and true. So please definitely tag us at Modern Bar Cart. And also, Paul, you want to share your Instagram handle since we, we can talk about that next? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, my Instagram handle is express and discard with underscores in between each word. Yeah. So is that your stance on on how a proper martini should be made? Honestly, no. I, it's just catchy. <laughs> it is. It is. It is that. I, I do love a martini with a twist instead of olives. Uh, that's yeah. that. That's my go-to. But I usually leave the twist in. I yeah. I just I, I think that there are lots of cocktails, lots of cocktails where the twist should be discarded and lots where it should be left in. You know, I think it really depends on the specific cocktail. Sure. Sure. Uh, so what I wanted to do is talk a little bit more about the photo photo taking aspect of mm -hmm. your, I guess your brand It's kind of, you have a brand mm -hmm. and, uh, a lot of people out there, especially our followers, they'll tag us in all their, their cocktail experiments and we get a whole range of them. Some of them are, you can tell they spent a long time staging this. Some of them are just, Hey, here's what I'm drinking. Thanks for the recipe. Mm -hmm. But for folks who are looking to take their Instagram game or they're just, you know, they're documentation game to the next level. How do you stage a, a cocktail for a photo? What are some of the things that you take into account? Well, I, uh, I exclusively use an iPhone for my pictures, which, uh, limits me to a great extent, uh, in terms of the locations where I can take a good picture because it pretty much has to be next to a window. <laughs> um, I, you know, I usually the, the pictures are staged pretty quickly kind of right before or in the middle of service. So, you know, there's there, there's a certain time crunch aspect to it that necessitates me not having equipment and stuff that I have to set up. But I, I mean, it's it's a matter of finding the right time of day, F finding the right time of day when this when the, the sunlight is good, wherever your window is, um, paying attention to everything that's in the frame. Um, you know, it's nice being able to take the pictures in a restaurant because it's it's easy to find, you know, 
find a variety variety of different usable backgrounds and different usable angles. Um, you know, I like to, <clears throat> as I've gradually come into my own, if you, if you go back, if you, if you go back on my Instagram feed, you'll see that it's gone through many phases and it's come a long way. Um, I am not a photographer by any means. It's, I have no training in this and I, I'm just a guy with an iPhone and I'm always learning, but you know, I, I have been trying in more recent months to, you know, put more consideration into the color scheme of a picture and how it complements the subject that is the drink, et cetera. But, um, yeah, I don't, Instagram is, um, I've been surprised at how useful and how practical of a tool it has actually been. I never had a personal Instagram account previously. Uh, my wife is a very talented photographer and has been running, running a personal Instagram page from back before Instagram was really popular. Um, and I never really understood it. And she's the one who originally encouraged me to start a page and to use it just to promote my own cocktails and kind of build my own brand from that. And it's turned out to be, uh, a very worthwhile endeavor. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I love the marble that mm -hmm. you that you get to use. Yeah. Is, are there are there little um, like spots in the bar that that are just really really useful? Is oh, there anything absolutely. about like because Friday, Saturday, Sunday? Why don't we take a second to mm -hmm. describe it for folks? Yeah, absolutely. Because um, I kind of gave a little description of a bar, but your your new spot, or the the spot you were most recently at. What's um, what does it look like? What's the atmosphere? What's the vibe? Why should somebody come mm -hmm. and, and see you there? Uh, when you walk in the front door, uh, you're greeted first by a 13-seat uh, marble bar. Uh, we, when the when it originally opened, when we were in the construction phase, the, the owners actually drove up to Danby, Vermont, and hand selected the slab of marble that would become their bar top. Um, and it's it's a beautiful and eye-catching bar top. So 13 seats. Um, and then there's a marble drink rail on the opposite wall uh, with no seats. It's, you know, it's all standing room as well as a marble table up in the front window, which is featured pretty prominently in my Instagram page. Um, and uh, so the only the only seats in the bar are the 13 that are actually there. But we have a ton of standing room. Um, the decor is very uh, it, it's very classic. It's very timeless. So there's. Uh, the walls are paneled with uh, beautiful panels they stripped out of an old office building that happened to be built in the same year, I believe, 1898. Wow. Um, that fit perfectly into the room and make it look beautiful. Um, we have really nice kind of Renaissance Revival style sculptures behind the bar. Um, so it's a, it's a beautiful and very cozy space, very warm colors, very inviting. And it's just a, it's a nice kind of, it's a nice atmosphere to settle into. Um, and it's, and there's a huge window in the front that allows in a ton of light, um, which is, which is great for, uh, great for photography, obviously, and also great for, great for the vibe in there, um, right. at least during the daylight hours. And this is a establishment with the bar downstairs and then a full dining room upstairs, right? Correct. Uh, yeah, the up, the upstairs, um, the upstairs is, is a different atmosphere. There is no bar up there. It's all table seating. Um, the, uh. One wall is decorated with these massive and really beautiful uh, Zuber murals that depict the, it's kind of like a, a fanciful depiction of the Tuileries Gardens in Paris. Um, shutters over the windows. It's, it's, it's still very cozy, but it feels less like a bar and more like a, more, more like a home. More, sure. it's, it's, a, it's a little more private upstairs. Downstairs, 
downstairs it's very much you know you're on display people can see in the window and see who's there they can get a feel for the vibe upstairs is much quieter much more kind of uh and so it's a you're there to eat more low-key environment yeah exactly it's more more private you're there to eat exactly great Mm -hmm. great well uh we'll let you give out all the address and contact info for how to how to visit friday saturday sunday here at the end of the episode but uh for now how do you feel about a couple lightning round questions sure absolutely cool so what we'd like to start with and this is always tricky for bartenders uh what's your favorite cocktail and if you, if you don't have a favorite of all time what's something that you've been more recently obsessed with uh honestly if i had to pick one cocktail the, the cocktail that i order when i go out uh two to one martini with a lemon twist boodles gin if they have it beautiful boodles gin any particular vermouth i like dolan nuali pra is great too yeah i'm i'm, I'm, I'm flexible though Dolan Dry is there's, great. There's actually uh, there's a bar in town called Oyster House that makes their own dry vermouth, and it's fantastic. I love their martini. Very nice. I love that. I, I do a four to one, um, but I I think sometimes when uh, the situation changes, I, I I think it's I think an a very underrated move is changing your vermouth level to like adjust to the situation mm-hmm. that yeah, you're absolutely. in. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I feel like that's that's an underrated move. So folks out there who are listening who are martini drinkers, <laughs> think about think about customizing your martini to to, you know, what you're doing, whether you're just having a nightcap or if you're, you know, about to have some oysters or something. Absolutely. Yeah. The the real question is how much gin do I want to drink right now? <laughs> <laughs> there you go. That's a simpler way to look at a martini. So, if you were a cocktail tool or ingredient, what would you be and why? Ah, uh, that's a that's an interesting one. Um, I'm gonna say uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna say my favorite ingredient to work with in my favorite spirit, which is Laird's bonded apple brandy. Hmm, and that's quasi local. Uh, yeah, yeah, Scobyville, New Jersey. Um, yeah. It's not not a far drive right across the bridge. Yep. Um, yeah, you know it's it's classic and indispensable. Mm-hmm. What do you like to make with that? I like to make a lot of things with it. I have I, I have one uh, one original recipe that is very popular. It's called the conquest of Gaul. It's uh, Laird's hundred proof apple brandy with uh, Benedictine Lafroy tenure and honey syrup. So the lemon twist little take on a terrapin. Uh, I'm actually not familiar with the terrapin. I, bel- I don't know if the terrapin has Benedictine. I think it might have chartreuse oh. instead, but look up the terrapin cocktail that, yeah. because I believe that is one of the classic apple Jack or apple yeah. brandy cocktails. Um, I will definitely look into that. I'm very partial to the French, uh, the French apple brandies, the mm-hmm. uh, the Calvados. As know. am I. Yeah. So, uh, man, Laird's Applejack. That's that's really and the conquest of Gaul. It ran, reminds me of uh, Little Giants, the annexation of Puerto Rico. It's <laughs> like the football play that they run at the end. <laughs> um, so you got the Applejack, and what was the other ingredient? Uh, Lafroig, and then be- okay. uh, Benedictine and honey. Yeah. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Very cool. Laird's Applejack. Fantastic. We have not had that one yet. I like it. Yeah. Okay, so next question. We referenced the Cocktail Codex earlier, and I think Mm -hmm. this is something that both you and I need to go our separate ways, do our homework, and then come back with some fresher thoughts on, because it's definitely a newer book. But uh, are there any particular books that you would recommend uh, that were influential for you as you were learning to make cocktails? Absolutely. 
I would say, the first book that really got me into this whole field was David Wondrick's Imbibe, um, which I'm sure is the case for a lot of people. Uh, you know, it's it's such an informative book and it's also such an engaging read. Um, it really just kind of draws you in and it, it makes you thirsty to learn more and to read more. And when I first read that, there wasn't nearly as much additional material to read afterward. Um, but I would say <clears throat> with that being the thing that originally hooked me, the the books that I've been really enjoying for the past few years, um, are the ingredient focused books. Um, you know, I, I really loved, uh, Talia Baiocchi's book on Sherry, mm -hmm. um, Emma Jansen's Mezcal book, uh, Brad Thomas Parsons books are fantastic. His bitters and Amaro books have, you know, been hugely informative. Um, and for me, it's, it's really great being able to, being able to buy a book from from an expert in one particular field and learn all about learn all about this ingredient and it gives me new things to taste and it gives me new things to look for um, and you know so often most of the time they're also full of recipes also and new things to try out and new ways to see this ingredient so um, I would say just in general all I, I I've loved the I've loved the focus on kind of ingredient category focused books in the past few years. There have been so many of them. Yeah. The way I think about those, it's almost like somebody, so these, these authors, they obviously spend like a couple years, like they spend mm -hmm. years of their life researching and, and creating these books. It's almost like they threw themselves on a grenade for you so that you could pick up the book and just Absolutely. run, you know, Absolutely. they did all the legwork and we get to just buy the book and read it and yeah it's, it's as easy as that yeah. and just go into the bar and cackle like a little child like <laughs> creating these awesome things so yeah yeah cool ingredient focused books we'll we'll list those that you mentioned on the show notes page over at modernbarcart.com forward slash podcast so if anyone wants to pick those up you can just head right over the show notes page and click on the link and we'll shoot you over to amazon or the author's page or wherever you can pick it up so last kind of round of advice here uh for folks who are just starting on their journey as a home bartender, and and for you, I'll put a, a little bit more of a, a fine point on it. For folks who are beginning to experiment beyond the set classic cocktails like the martini, the old fashioned, the Manhattan, mm -hmm. for folks who are starting to to want to get that little itch to create something that's their own, do you have any advice for them? Absolutely. The most important thing to do is taste as many different ingredients as you can all of those things that you read about read about in books all of the obscure classic cocktail ingredients and all of those random spirits with hard to pronounce names all the amari all the weird fortified wines from southern france and central italy and all of that weird stuff taste every single thing that you can find get to know it get to Get, get to know the way that they're made, the way that they unfold in your palate, the differences in flavors, and and then, you know, get to know how they taste together. Um, yeah. You know, that's, that's what it really comes down to. Uh, it comes down to knowing your ingredients. The more ingredients you're familiar with and the more, you, the more familiar you are with each one, uh, the more opportunities you'll find to make interesting combinations and create new flavors and new flavor contours. Right. And this goes back sort of to spirits and cocktail ingredients as ultimately agricultural products. They all start Absolutely. as a seed. Somebody grows them, somebody mm -hmm. picks them, somebody processes them, and then eventually they make their way to you. So when you're staring at a finished product, whether it's a spirit, a liqueur, a maro vermouth, or something that's a fresh ingredient, 
get your impression, stick your face in it, mm -hmm. and then see if you can do a little bit of homework and trace it back to where it came from. Exactly. And usually during that process, you learn something. What does it taste like and why does it taste like that? You know, sure. it, those are always questions that are worth asking about every single, every single thing that you read about, every single thing that you taste and work with. It's, it's always worth learning more about them. If you walk into a good cocktail bar as a patron and you are really curious about an ingredient um, and you request a quarter ounce of it, have, do, do you think that a bartender would turn somebody down typically? I think it depends on the ingredient. Uh, I'm usually I'm, I'm usually happy to let people taste things unless they're extremely expensive things. Sure. <laughs> that, that can be problematic. So don't 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 ask for like a quarter ounce of truffles. Right, exactly. <laughs> but but you know, in my in in my experience, you know, most people who work behind cocktail bars are, are really excited about these ingredients, and they're really excited uh, when somebody is actually interested in them and makes that effort to ask the question and learn more about it. And most of the time, in my experience, if you ask what something is, they're going to pour you a sample without you even asking. Right. That's my That's been my experience as well. Uh, so, Paul, this has been absolutely fantastic. A lot of great things to think about. How can people find you in, in your digital space and then uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday in its digital and physical space? Mm -hmm. um, it's easy to find me on Instagram. Once again, I said before my handle was express and discard with underscores in between each word. So it's easy to look me up on there. Um, and I try to be very, uh, I, I try to be good with interactions. I try to answer questions and things when people, when people comment, um, I try to keep up on that. Um, and uh, I work at Friday, Saturday, Sunday, which is located at 261 South 21st Street in Philadelphia. That's in the Rittenhouse Square neighborhood. Um, if you're in town, you know, it's it's right off the off the main drag for shopping and restaurants and everything. It's really easy to get to. So you should absolutely, uh, absolutely come by and visit us. It's a great spot. Great food. Great everything. Great. And do they have a, a handle on social media? Oh, yeah. Uh, I believe they are Friday.Saturday.Sunday. Let me confirm. That. I, I believe that's that's correct. So we'll yeah. list all those handles over on the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. And I'm going to drop in a dope-ass map with a pinpoint right on Friday, Saturday, Sunday. <laughs> so for anybody who wants to know where it is, you can click on that interactive map, scroll around Philadelphia, don't break the Liberty Bell. It's already got kind of messed up. But uh, Paul, thanks again for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Barkhart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start cocktail revolution here and by spreading the word you're helping us fight the good fight you can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear 
Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Bar Cart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners, and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember, folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. This episode was made possible with editing and production assistance by Samantha Reed, cocktail wisdom by Paul McDonald, and a little bit of interview magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2019.